This is Your Morning Basket, where we help you bring truth, goodness, and beauty to your homeschool day. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Episode 8 of the podcast. I'm Pam Barnhill, your host, and I'm so happy that you're joining me today. Well, today we get to talk about one of my absolute favorite subjects on the show, but I realize that poetry is not something that everyone enjoys. And actually, I hope that we're here to change all of that today. I think one of the number one reasons that many people don't like poetry is because they're intimidated by it, or actually... They're intimidated by the way they were taught about poetry in their educational experiences. So maybe we can move past that today with some of the tips that we have on the podcast. So sit back and I hope you enjoy and maybe come away with a new view of poetry and how you can share it with your children. Nicholas Ireland is a graduate of the University of Tennessee, where he studied humanities and philosophy. Now he spends his time teaching humanities to eighth grade boys at Providence Christian School in Alabama, where he lives with his wife, Melissa, and his two adorable little boys. Last spring at our local homeschool conference, he led a session all about diving into poetry with your kids, and all the homeschool moms were raving about this one. He's joining us today to share about how we can incorporate great poetry into our morning times without fear. Nicholas, welcome to the program. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, let's talk a little bit about the importance of poetry. If I'm a homeschool mom and maybe poetry isn't my thing, why is it important to do poetry with my children? Well, I'd go first. uh, If you're a parent trying to educate your child in the scriptures, first of all, if that's important to you, And that was the first thing that I thought about. So much of God's word is communicated through poetry. The very first words that man ever spoke were poetry. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And so that's kind of a starting point for me is there's something innate to our being human where we want to express things in as song or as poetry, where it could be expressed through prose. And a lot lot can be expressed through prose, but we seem to have... um, Uh, this desire to use our language differently and to use the kind of things that are found in poetry that give expression to who we are and what we're feeling and what we're experiencing. Yeah. Cindy Rollins says that poetry forces us to think metaphorically. And I think that's a very interesting concept that it causes us to think differently than how we normally think. Yeah. I think sometimes we, we can certainly as Westerners get so caught up in, and certainly as a logic teacher, I know I was teaching my kids, you know, categorical logic, you know, so this is this and thinking about truth values and making statements, but not all truth is that way. There's a lot of analogical truth as well. And we understand a lot of things through analogy. And uh, I, I just think that that's part of who we are as human beings. Yeah. And I think being able, having that great exposure to poetry really helps us to see things in analogies better by having that repeated exposure. And think about how often God communicates to us in that same way and communicates himself to us in that same way. It's really striking when you think about it. I mean, how many analogies Christ himself uses or is throughout the scriptures? God is a rock. I mean, that's not a categorical truth. I mean, he's not a rock, but he communicates himself for some reason. He chooses to communicate himself to us in that way and send so many others. Yeah. Well, why do you think it is that poetry intimidates some people? I think that 
we're taught, I think, in school uh, that we have to understand it to be able to enjoy it. And that's certainly true with poetry. If we have time or if we or whatever, I'd um, I would certainly read this uh, short poem by Billy Collins called Introduction to Poetry. But I, I will recommend I recommend that to folks. It's in his um, a collection of poems of his called Sailing Alone Around the Room. But he just talks about how he can't get his students just to read a poem and let it and just let their minds wander through it and let it kind of become a part of them. And he, he can't get his students to play with it. That they all they want to do is just find out what it really means. And I think poetry is pretty dense stuff and pretty heady stuff. And um, if people are, are approaching with this necessity of I have to really understand it and, and master it, I think most people just aren't going to do it. Okay, so you think it's this tension that we have within ourselves when faced with a poem that for some reason we have to get to the deeper meaning in it and we can't just sit back and enjoy it. I'll speak for myself and say that that was certainly true of me. I mean, even as an English major, there was so much. I was well out of college before I think I really started enjoying poetry. I read it a lot. I, there was a lot that I liked about it. But in terms of just picking up an anthology, picking up a collection or or whatever, and just really sitting down and enjoying some poetry for the evening was not something I did much until probably into my 20s. So what was it that made the difference for you? What was the turning point that allowed you to overcome that intimidation and start enjoying it more? Well, I know one was just an experience with certain poets that did that to me. One of those would be Gerard Manley Hopkins, who I read some a little bit of in college and enjoyed. But it wasn't until I guess I came back to a poem or two of his. I had a friend maybe who was just engaging with that poem one time when I was at summer camp, actually, and as a counselor. And I just saw him really delighting that poem. And I thought, there must be something here. And man, to this day, when I read Hopkins, it's one of the most pleasurable, most pleasurable things that I do. And certainly one of the most pleasurable things that I read. A modern-day poet, contemporary poet named Lucy Shaw is one who um, has had, had a similar effect on me. And I would say she's a, she mimics or channels Hopkins quite a bit, actually, in her poetry. I think just realizing that I could sit down and really enjoy their poetry and then kind of branching out from there, the way we all do, I think, with music. Oh, I like this musician. And so, you know, the sort of the Pandora model. Well, maybe you'll like, maybe you'll like guys, you know, people kind of like this. They're similar in some ways, but then you kind of branch out more and more. We need a Pandora for poetry. That would be awesome. That would be great. We'll work on that. The Poem Genome Project. <laughs> and I would add to that Billy Collins as well. I think Billy Collins, for me, he's not everyone's favorite. And certainly in, in academia, I don't think he's anyone's favorite. But I think he's a wonderful poet who can really make poetry a lot of fun. And I think he's also pretty insightful. I think reading, finding a couple of poets that you just happen to enjoy can be a, a bridge to a whole bunch of others that you can also enjoy. Okay. Searching for that one, and I'm sure that there's one out there for everybody who's going to kind of give a, a spark that you're going to just really kind of fall into and really, really like. Well, let's talk a little bit about poetry with your children, because I think this is probably a great way for a lot of moms who have not found poetry horribly approachable in the past would be to start looking at some poems that maybe are aimed at or geared towards their children a little bit, and they can start enjoying those. I know that I was really not aware of, say, Robert Louis Stevenson from my own childhood for whatever reason. And just in reading him with my children and seeing their delight in him, I've started to take more delight in his poems. You know, we read his about the blocks today, and it was such a delightful little piece and something that they totally understood. So using those 
poems maybe that are aimed a little bit more towards children, I think is a great way for some parents to get their feet wet in a non-intimidating way. Let's talk a little bit about how you can share poetry with your children at home. Sure. I'm going to butcher C.S. Lewis, I think, here, who said, in reference to children's literature, and I think you've heard the quote, that literature that's fit only to be read by children is not fit to be read at all. Yes. No, Um, you didn't butcher that one. I do feel similarly about poetry. I think you find those greats like Robert Louis Stevenson, uh, Lewis Carroll, you know, guys who are really, really thoughtful artists and authors and thinkers, first and foremost, who then write poetry. I guess it's kind of like even in the world of fiction, I'd rather read or even or music. I'd rather listen to an artist who is a Christian than a Christian artist. Uh, same thing with novels and things. That, so it's, uh, maybe it's a, a, a slight nuance. It seems to play out in, in a, a much less <laughs> subtle way. I, th- I think there's a big difference between those. And so yeah, there are very obviously those poems and books, for that matter, that are written sort of solely for children and aimed at children. And I tend to stay away from those, even though I really liked Shel Silverstein when I was growing up. He's not my go-to guy right now for when I'm recommending poetry to kids or when I'm reading poetry with my own kids. I think it's important for them to, to hear excellent writing and to be exposed to what's excellent, uh, just as you would with just about anything else. So yeah, I think it's important to find those good poets who also happen to resonate with children. Okay, so let's help everybody out. Give me a few people that you would really recommend. Well, I mentioned a couple. Uh, Lewis Carroll has, uh, I think, has several. I think that are great for kids to read. Ogden Nash is hilarious. Yes, and, he is. Uh, and a lot of his are shorter about animals and just his rhymes who are, that are really off the wall are great. If uh, your kids can handle maybe a little bit of off-color language, his poem, The Common Cold, is uproarious. It's one of my favorites. Let's see, Rudyard Kipling, I think, writes great poetry that kids can resonate with. And it seems like I'm leaving a couple out that I should be. We uh, actually happen to be big Hilaire Bullock fans around here. I don't know if you've read very much of his stuff. No, that's someone I'm not familiar with. The Yak is one of his, and I'm trying to think of, um, oh, The Vulture, that's another one. And those are some that we really enjoy. Another animal guy. Yeah, I don't know how many others he has that really resonate well, but um, like Robert Service, who wrote The Cremation of Sam McGee. I think ballads like that are great. Uh, Longfellow and his ballads, because you can you know, get the Midnight Ride of Paul Revere and things like that. I think, you know, starting at a fairly young age, they enjoy the story behind those poems, and they're so well-written. And then I would just actually recommend one book that I found really, really useful. It's called A Child's Anthology of Poetry. And that the one I have is by Echo Press, uh, E-C-C-O. I think the compiler, if I'm uh, not mistaken, is the editor is Elizabeth Sword, S-W-O-R-D. So that's a book that I've found really useful with uh, when I taught fifth grade. It was great. I just turn them loose with that sometime. Uh, you know, a kid who just had some spare time and say, hey, flip through and find a poem that you like in here. And uh, let's talk about why you like it. And we'll read it in front of the class. And then when I taught, uh, I was working with my seventh graders a couple of years ago in an English class. I would just, most of the poems that I picked were out of there. And the poems are far from childish, but they're, many of them are, are, are really great for children. What are some techniques a mom might use in helping her kids kind of get familiar with poetry? Now, you've mentioned handing an anthology over to a child and letting them find one. What are some other things we could do? Well, I'm assuming they're going to be sitting down, enjoying the poems with them. Obviously, I think that's a given. And so 
I think just just reading through poems with him. I was amazed the other day. I was reading an article from the Searcy Institute about getting your children to love reading or something. I can't remember which one it was, but I hadn't read much of the article. And there was a hyperlink to it just said because of this video. And I thought, oh, there's going to be some great videos from Searcy Institute and everything. And I click it and it's a it's a three-year-old reciting a poem by Billy Collins called Litany, which is a really great poem. And and it was really funny to hear this three-year-old reciting it. But as I was doing that, my son, Lucas, walked in. He's four. And he listened to it with me. And then he said, well, let's do another one. And so, uh, you know, YouTube has those little sidebar things that you hope are decent. And sure enough, there were several options there. And so we started clicking on, we, we probably listened to, I probably just at that moment, just five or six poems. And he really enjoyed just hearing the poems read, sometimes by the poet himself. We listened to some by Robert Frost and some by Billy Collins. And there were some others. And there's a little bit of screening you're going to want to do there because sometimes people post, it's just kind of silly. They're just the way they post it on there. It's, it's more ironic, you know, the video they do instead of actually enjoying the poetry. But anytime you can get the a video or audio of the poet reading his own stuff, I found to be really, really neat. Or somebody else reading the poem really well. So it's um, kind of like a little poetry slam there at the house. Yeah, it was fun. We haven't done that much, but it was just a couple of days ago that we did it. So, and he's asked me a couple of times since then that we could, you know, can we watch some more poems? I'm like, sure, that's really cool. And I've, I use that as, as a jumping off point with him to say, kind of an intrinsic reward. Well, we'll keep listening, but I want you to find, when you find one that you really like, we're going to start working on that one. We're going to we're going to memorize it ourselves. So you know, he listened to Casey at the bat, which is probably a bit too. Yeah, I mean, he could do it, but it's a bit long right now. There were several we listened to that I thought would would be nice. Even even Carl Sandburg's "The Fog Creeps on Little Cat Feet," which is about six lines long, and he enjoyed that. But so I thought I've been thinking that it could be a really good way to get him to again to want to do more of the same to sort of mimic what he sees there and and memorize some poems. Himself. What role do you think memorization plays in enjoying poetry? Oh, tremendous. For a couple of reasons. There's nothing like replaying these. And again, I keep coming back to music because it's so musical, as we, as we all, I think, understand. But just to keep coming back to these, these beautiful sounds or really clever word combinations or great images and to be able to really replay those with, with specificity through our minds or even say them out loud. I mean, I can't tell you, you know, from from memorizing some poems and I'm, you know, I'm just driving and sometimes uh, maybe I'm weird, but you know, some people sing in the car, I guess more spiritual people probably pray in the car and <laughs> I just recite, uh, you know, recite some of these poems and it really, it, it delights me. That's great. I think just obviously the mental faculty of memorizing something and memorizing something that's really good. The opportunity to share with other people is great. Sometimes, you know, poets, uh, they just say the right thing in the right way, and it's fitting to the circumstance. And you can, for lack of a better word, really bless other people, <laughs> benefit other people, you know, by sharing those words with them. So that I think that's a value in, in memorizing it. It'll be something they'll carry with them as they become writers themselves, and they'll have it in their minds, you know, just how words sound when put together, what the rhythm of words was like. There are probably others, but that's a handful of good reasons. I have found my good anthology, and I'm ready to start doing some poetry with my children. What's something that, is there anything I should be doing kind of before, during, and after reading this poem to help my kids enjoy and understand it better? Sure. Beforehand, find the poems that you like. 
and I'm going to emphasize, and that's what I emphasize probably in that workshop more than anything is at least for starters, don't out of some sense of obligation, feel like you have to subject yourself to some poem you don't like. Now, there may be a time to read it later. I'm not saying down with poems that nobody, that you don't like, because they may be really valuable and worthwhile, but at least for the beginning, like we said earlier, there's something out there for everybody. Find poems that you like, that make you smile, or that really delight you, or that or that really you know gets you thinking, or, or that catch your attention for one reason or another, for one reason or another. And I think with as with most things, if you're sharing these poems that you found that you you have an interest in, your kids are going to be much quicker to pick up on those and to enjoy those, as, as opposed to saying, "Okay, Rudyard Kipling's If makes the top ten list on like everybody's list, so we're going to memorize that one first. It's a great poem, but it may not resonate with you or with your kids at this particular time in your life, and um, you know, hopefully it will later. So I, I would say beforehand, just find the handful that you like. Maybe find some of those readings that you really like, someone who reads it really well. I'll just slide in here real quick. LibriVox is a pretty good site that has a lot of audio recordings. They're free from works that are in the public domain. I'm going to plug one here. Uh, Alan, a guy named Alan Davis Drake reads a poem, reads uh, Jabberwocky. And he may have two different readings on there, but Anyway, he's either a really good faker or he has a really, really, really thick. It's either, it must be a Bronx. I don't know. I'm from the South, so all Yankees kind of sound alike to me. <laughs> but he has a, it's just, it's such a great reading. So finding things like that, I think. And I even had kids who memorized Jabberwocky. This very, very, very Southern Alabama girl, she actually read the Jabberwocky in his accent because she had listened to it so many times. <laughs> so that was pretty hilarious. So beforehand that, I think during just encouraging the kids to read it, uh, you know, to, to read the words themselves, ask them if they like it. I found that to be really useful. What do you like about this poem? Uh, getting to think about that. There, there's got, you know, other than it's short, <laughs> which is what most of my seventh grade boys would say, find that thing that you like. Well, I like the rhymes. Okay, that's great. You know, that, that's, that's enough. It's enough for right now. And then afterwards, I found myself with my older kids, again, seventh graders, just saying, Rate the poem one to five and just tell me why why you rate it that way. And it gets them to think of it in relation to other poems they've read in terms of, well, I liked it more than this one because of that or less than that one because of that. So, and so know. then they're making those comparisons. Yeah, and I, and I, and I love that. I, th- I think later on, maybe the question is, well, what do you think this means? That's not a bad question. It's just a bad question to start with. It's not the first question I'd ask after reading a poem because I'm not sure that, I don't know, I think we've all walked through art museums and stuff. Sometimes just, you just, you know, a, a particular room or a particular artist just take your breath away. And it's completely separate from the message they're communicating. It's just what, what they're doing and how they're doing it. I liken it to watching a, a sunrise or a sunset. We don't think we've ever, I've never sat there at a sunset and explained to my kid, well, son, you know, the way that the sun is reflect, refracting through the dust particles in the air is what's causing that streak right there. And we don't do that. We just go, oh, beautiful. Wow. And I think sometimes that's, and that exalts the creator of that sunset. We see beetles outside and sometimes inside. We marvel at those things. You know, maybe later on, the understanding what kind of makes a beetle work or makes grass grow is um, a, mess, a very worthwhile conversation and helps us appreciate the beetle more and the grass more and the lizard or whatever it is. But it's very seldom where we start with anything else. So that's just my little plug there about poems is start in the right place. Just delight in the poem and the beauty of the poem itself and, and what's delightful and good. That usually resonates with us anyway. Well, can you help give me a little cheat sheet? 
you know, if it's been a number of years since I've done any kind of literature and I'm reading these poems with my children and I know that in there, there are some devices, some different kinds of language that's going on. Can you just help give me a little cheat sheet of some things that I might look for? Yeah. Before I give you my cheat sheet, I'm going to give you Suzanne Clark, who wrote a very helpful book called The Roar on the Other Side. And it's a very practical book for writing poetry and for getting students, kids to write poetry, and also for teaching a lot of the elements that are in there. So it's just, a, it's not a very big book. It's put out by Canon Press. I found it a, a lot of, found it really useful when I taught some kids of varying ages several years ago, kind of a extended poetry workshop. So anyway, so I do recommend Suzanne Clark's book, The Roar on the Other Side. It also has a lot of really great poems in it. She has a good um, appendix with a whole bunch of poems in there that are a good starting place. What do you listen for? I'd start, because my favorite poet is Hopkins, I would start with alliteration because he does that really well. So that's the repetition of consonant sounds or sounds of the beginnings of words. It's not rhyming when he says, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. Uh, it will flame out like shining from shook foil. Uh, you get a sense of those first sounds, shining, shook, foil, grandeur, and God. So that's all alliteration. And that's probably the most playful device that we have when you're really going to have fun with words. And maybe other people besides me and some of my friends have done this where, you know, we purposely, and when we're talking, try to, you know, try to alliterate as much as we can and kind of, kind of giggle about it a little bit. And uh, you say things in kind of fun, funny way. So that's big. If you're ever reading Anglo-Saxon poetry like Beowulf, uh, a good translation of that will maintain the alliteration was really important. They alliterated instead of rhyming. Rhyming was brought in by the basically by the French. I didn't say that with disgust on purpose, but uh, <laughs> but you know Beowulf is a good example. If you read uh, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, uh, which is a medieval poem after the the Norman Conquest, when the Conqueror, then you see that it has both the Anglo-Saxon alliteration very strong in it, but then it also has the um, a very strong rhyming element as well. So you see those two things kind of coming together. Uh, those are both fun. So obviously the second one would be rhyming. And most of us know how to do that and know what that looks like. It can be done really well. It can be, do, be done really poorly, obviously. And, you know, we, we consider some things really childish rhymes if they're real, real hard rhymes at the end of, at the end of lines. But they're more fun when they're worked into the middle of a line. You can see that. Or when the line doesn't stop at the end, there's no punctuation that stops it. And so the rhyme sometimes gets sort of lost in the flow of the language. It's neat sometimes to go back and reread a poem carefully and realize it was rhyming a whole lot more than you thought it was. And I will say those are two, rhyming certainly is almost outmoded. I don't know that many poets today consistently write with any kind of rhyme scheme, like a regular rhyming you know, plan at the end of every other line or every line or whatever. There was kind of a move in the, you know, it was starting with the moderns that we were talking about earlier and a little before them, but certainly with the, with the modern, with the modern age where they were trying to throw off some of the, some of the standards and forms and, and move to something that they would, that they would have called more free. Now, certainly people had done it before them, but in terms of something that was valuable to them, they, they basically said that rhyming became a whole lot less valuable in poetry and they wanted to write something that was totally free. So you get guys like William Carlos Williams who, who writes that famous poem, you know, the red wheel so much depends upon a red wheelbarrow glazed with rainwater beside the white chickens. And that's the end of the poem. And, you know, not much rhyming in there, not much of anything that we've been talking about. And yet it's considered a good poem and I would concur for what that's worth. So that, that's something. Images. So uh, we, we've gone from like sounds, alliteration, 
and rhyming now to things like images. So what are the visual things that happen when you're reading a poem? And that can happen through sound. Again, like that Hopkins example, it will flame out like shining from shook foil. That's a resplendent line. You see light shining all, you know, all over that thing and reflecting off of it. But then we get other images, and there are some great scriptural ones too. Uh, your wound is incurable is part of you know, Isaiah. You know, you're sick from head to foot. Or we get um, all of our righteous works are filthy rags. Those are really strong images. Another one is the proverb, you know, as a dog returns to his vomit, so a man returns to his sin. I didn't mean to pick three really negative examples, but but anyway, you, we get these strong images that should elicit some kind of emotional gut response to us. So and, these are the pictures that we're seeing in our head in response to the words that we're reading on the page. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and again, that can be elicited either through the word itself or even through the sound of the word. One of Suzanne Clark's exercises she uses in the roar of the, on the other side, one of my favorite poetic exercises, is she draws two shapes. And uh, real quickly, one of them is like a glob, real rounded edges. And the other one has real sharp edges on it, a lot of, a lot of pokies. And she says, okay, one of these is named Una, and one of these is named Keepik, which is which. And that's all she gives you, the only prompt she gives you. And I mean, it's almost 100% unless someone's really trying to mess with you. They always make Uno the real flowy one, and Keepik is always the real sharp one. Well, why? I mean, why would it be? And yet, you know, people, you know, they, we all know that, well, Una sounds round. Wait, what do you mean it sounds round? How can something sound round? Round, round is a shape, <laughs> uh, you know, but, well, I don't know, but it just has that sort of feel to it. What, the word has a feeling? So, Anyway, it's really fun to do an exercise like that with the kids. And then you keep on going. You say, you know, one's a snare drum and one's a tuba. One's a lemon and one's a melon. And there's some really, so there's, there's some fun stuff to do with an exercise like that. But it's amazing what our brains do with, with a sound and how, how sensory a sound or, or a word can actually be. Yeah, that's really interesting. I went to a, a workshop a few years ago with Michael Clay Thompson, who it's Michael Clay Thompson language art. He was talking about Shakespeare and how do you have the the witches in Macbeth and they have kind of they're using all of these D's and G's and these real guttural consonants in yeah. their speech. But then you have somebody like Romeo in Romeo and Juliet, and he's using softer sounds. He's using these S's and these round vowel sounds in his speech. And it was totally done on purpose. So it's just kind of amazing to think about how poets manipulate sounds in such a manner to make either these round, soft images in our brain or these guttural, sharp images in our brain. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, just the, that's just the incredible thing about the way that language works and the way that our minds work. And I've not read extensive studies, but it's fairly universal. Some sounds just always elicit the same, the same reaction from, from people in any culture, no matter where you are. Uh, and that's pretty fascinating, too. But that's, that's probably another, another conversation. <laughs> okay, so we have alliteration and rhyme, and we just talked about the images. Do you have anything else for us? Um, oh, well, then uh, there's meter which is, again, how they string the syllables, the accented syllables of the word together. And so, you know, depending on you know, most poetry and most spoken word is in something called iambic. We tend to speak kind of alternating, but um, but um, but um, but um. And in a poem, you kind of look at the general trend. It's not, you know, if you look at the stress syllables, you know, you'll see how they typically fall. So, 
in Robert Frost's famous poem, Two Roads Diverged in a Yellow Wood. We don't read it like that, Two Roads Diverged in a Yellow Wood, but but we do read it like that. I mean, that is, you know, in a, in a less accented way. Most of what Shakespeare wrote was in an iambic and usually what they call iambic pentameter. These are big words, just meaning iambic has that same stress pretty much throughout the line. And then the, um, the meter is, or the you know, pentameter or whatever is, how many of those iams there are. So if there are five of them, that's pentameter. Four would be tetrameter, and three would be trimeter for a really short line of poetry. Okay, so, so I think before we lose people, one of yep. the things that is like most things are kind of in this iambic kind of flow. But I think one of the things our ear probably tends to pick up is when that's broken. Yeah, well well said. And so what a poet's going to do is they're going to try to to jar you with it a little bit. Uh, I wish I could just think of an example right off the top of my head of something that, that I just knew, but I can't right now. Uh, <laughs> give me five minutes after our uh, after we finish talking, and I'll have probably three or four examples. But yeah, so they'll jar you or they'll change it on you. And normally what's going on there is they're usually trying to get your attention or emphasize something that, uh, again, that's communicated not with words. And that's probably the main difference between poetry and prose, good prose, which can be just as beautiful as poetry. In fact, I probably, another thing, I, another way I learned to love poetry was by, by reading the prose of Annie Dillard, one of my favorite authors. And I don't, to my knowledge, she writes no poetry, but her prose is just beautiful. And it's so poetic, it got me really reading a lot more poetry. But yeah, but a, a poet, because he's just more music, has more tools in his bag than a prose writer can do things. And like I said, I wish I had something right off the top of my head to, to give you there. But uh, yeah, I kind of put you on the spot. Give me a second. We'll come back to that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and just that idea that, like you said, to get your attention, you know, we're doing something different here. This is the bad guy or there's some kind of disharmony that we're expressing or something, something out of the ordinary. And so, Uh, okay. Can I give you one? Sure. Yeah. So you think about Gerard Manley Hopkins again, I'll return to him and I cannot recommend him enough. If you had to have, if you were trapped on a desert island with only one complete collection of poetry, it would have to be, I think, Gerard Manley Hopkins, especially if you're a believer. It helps. If you're not a believer, it's okay too. You'll really like him. He was a Jesuit priest, actually, and just a brilliant guy, lived a very short life, but wrote some pretty world-changing stuff. And in, in it kind of, in a lot of way, ushered in what we know as modern poetry. And he died, I think, in, in 1895. But so he's talking about this. He's got this poem talking about how fleeting beauty is. Nothing can keep beauty at all. And he sort of ends the first part, which is called the Let Echo with this very despairing, and you'll see in a minute what I'm talking about. And then, but the second part of the poem that butts up against it is called the golden echo. And it begins to take a more hopeful tone. He says, uh, be beginning since no nothing can be done to keep at bay age and ages, evils, hoar hair, ruck and wrinkle, drooping, dying, death, worst, tombs and worms and tumbling to decay. And then he goes on and says, so be beginning to despair, to despair, 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 spare. There is one. Here I have one. Hush there, only not within seeing of the sun. And so what he does in that little moment there where he says despair, 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 spare. I mean, something happens in our ear. Hopefully when we hear that, as we train our ears to hear, we're like, whoa, you know, something's happening. He missed something or something changed on me. And so he goes from actually the word despair, D-E-S-P-A-I-R, 
which we all know what that means, to spare, S-P-A-R-E, which means wait, <laughs> you know, stop, don't despair for just a minute. And so anyway, just the way he does that, and, and that was the first thing probably that triggered, that really caught my attention maybe in that poem when I first heard it, that just really fascinated me, made me want to just really immerse myself in that poem too. And so you don't even have to be aware of where the stresses and unstressed syllables are in there to know that he's done something different to get your attention. Yeah, yeah. And then and then that should get your attention. That's the point maybe at which you can say, now, why do you do that? He's having a bad day. You know, no, he wasn't having a bad day. You know, they didn't publish, you know, just whatever came off their off their pen back in those days, like we do now. They were, you know, it's good. And so they did it for a reason. I think, I mean, if you're reading good poets, then the fun then is kind of, then you dig deeper. That's why I say, okay, we start with wonder. We start with delight. And if we stop there, we may be okay. There's a danger in that, of course, if you have a, um, someone with a very, very different world and, and life view than you who's delighting you and you don't stop to think about why. <laughs> that could be dangerous, you know. There are a lot of shows on TV that would delight my son, and I'm sure they would, but I don't want him to watch them because there's something behind them, too, that's insidious, that's, that's bad for him. Or junk food, you know, a lot delights us in junk food. But, so not everything that delights us is good. But let's, let's let that be the starting place to where we can say, well, let me find out, okay, it's beautiful. Is it true? Does it ring true? There is a message behind what he's saying. And there are exceptions. Is there a message behind Jabberwocky? Somewhat, yeah. And I think it's a good one. Uh, you know, it's just a little quest. And it's, you know, someone, you know, going out to fight some kind of monster that apparently is I mean, kind of terrorizing folks. You know, and if that's, is that, if that's as far as you get in the message of it, then you know, you're probably doing pretty well. But yeah, let, you know, train your ear just to hear what's going on. And then again, let that be the thing that drives you to... I think a deeper inquiry, and I believe your delight will increase rather than decrease at that point, the more you learn and study up on that poem. Well, and I, I like what you say there, the train your ear. So you're not saying open up all of these books about how to study poetry and read through them and, and figure out all of these different questions you need to ask and methods you need to use for studying poetry. You're simply saying train your ear, read and enjoy poem after poem after poem. And after a while, you're going to start hearing these things and picking up on them without having to slog through the big, you know, poetry for dummies or how to read poetry or anything like that. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. And in fact, I'm saying if, if you want to not love poetry, then open up the big textbook first. <laughs> and it's, I mean, it's you know, almost tried and true. It's unlikely your return on that, I think, is going to be very low versus, and again, poetry is so much so easy to compare to, to other sensory things that we do, eating or listening to music or looking at nature or creation. So much poetry anyway, is just, it's just noticing what's out there. And so, so I think the training your ear, uh, I have a friend who's a bird watcher and I, he came to, to visit and we went out to this place one morning and we were out of the uh, truck for, it was under a minute. And he said, uh, oh, well, we're going to hear some of these, some uh, nut hatches today. And, uh, oh, and there's a heron out here. And, oh, I, uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing, uh, we may even see a kingfisher. And he listed 10 or 12 different birds that we were going to see later. And because he had a trained ear, he knew what he was listening for. I guarantee that began because birds delighted him at some point. <laughs> and then he started you know, going in and going deeper. He did not just download an app with a bunch of bird songs on it and memorize all those things so that maybe one day he could make good use of it and impress his friend, which he did. 
But I, I think same same thing here. I think just go to the tried and true, the good poets. It's not hard to figure out who those guys are, and kind of I think immerse yourself in them, and then you'll you'll learn you'll learn what good music sounds like. You'll learn what a good poem sounds like, or you'll you know eat at fine restaurants. You'll know what good food tastes like, and McDonald's won't be able to lie to you anymore because you'll say. This isn't good. I mean, maybe it's good for what it is, you know, dollar menu, but it's not good. It's passable. But uh, so, yeah, that's what I would say. Yeah, that training is so important. Well, help me out a little bit. Now, you've given me one anthology, and that was a child's anthology of poetry. And do you have any others to recommend? Any great poems, poets, or anthologies that we could list for our listeners? Yes, I can name a few I don't know. That's probably the best, probably for our audience. I think one of the it's great anthology It's pretty big. It's probably a couple hundred poems in there. That's the child's anthology. But then I've already recommended the rural on the other, other side, which is both instructional and it has a great collection of poems all the way through it. And so that's something else that I would definitely recommend. If you're trying to get students, children in, into poetry, this has got to be one that you uh, put in your arsenal. Lucy Shaw, who I mentioned earlier, she was a good friend of Madeline Lingle, who wrote the um, Strictly Tilting Planet. There's another one uh, I'm blanking on right now. but Yeah, anyway. me too. Yeah. <laughs> I uh, know I'll, I should know it. Work on some science fiction type stuff. But anyway, Lucy Shaw was a friend of hers. And Lucy Shaw, I guess, still is probably teaching up at um, Regent College up in Vancouver. Anyway, she wrote, she's a poet herself, but she also was an editor for a collection of poems called A Widening Light. Uh, widening, W-I-D. E-N-I-N-G, light. And the subtitle on that is Poems of the Incarnation. I, I pick this up usually around Christmas and Easter time and just find some really, really great poets writing some really great stuff centered around the person of Christ from birth to death. I'd recommend Gerard Manley Hopkins' The Complete Works. That'd be a good place to start. Uh, or anything by Hopkins would also be fine. And then uh, Billy Collins, I think a good way to start with Billy Collins is Sailing Alone Around the Room, which is a mostly a collection of stuff from previous works and then a few new poems by Billy Collins. And so that's great. I'm trying to think of what else I may have had good luck with. Those should all get you off on a good start. I wouldn't necessarily recommend a um, like a Norton anthology necessarily. It's got good poems, but that's usually written for a more academic audience. So they're kind of picking, quote, important, end quote, poems that are particularly favorable in academia and stuff. And they, I, they, they wouldn't be my first pick is to go to like a Norton, Norton anthology of modern poetry or Norton anthology of black poetry or things like that. So those are a few suggestions. Well, Nicholas, thank you so much for joining us here today and talking to us a little more about how we can enjoy poetry without fear, without being intimidated by it. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Uh, relax and enjoy some good poems. Thank you. For our basket bonus this week, we have a fun cheat sheet of poetry terms for you. So like Nicholas said in the podcast, you definitely want to start your study of poetry with wonder and focusing on the poems that you enjoy and simply enjoying those poems. But when you're ready to take it a few steps further, we have a downloadable cheat sheet for you of some of the poetry terms that Nicholas and I chatted about in the podcast and a little definition for each one. So you can print this out, put it in your morning time binder, 
and have it there to refer to when you're ready to ask your kids some more questions about poetry. You can find this at the show notes for this episode at edsnapshots.com forward slash Y-M-B-A. And those show notes are a great place to find links to all of the resources, books, and other things that Nicholas and I chatted about today on the podcast. So head on over there and check those out for all of the information that you need. And if you are one of the wonderful people who have left a ratings or review in iTunes for your morning basket, I just want to say thank you so much. I really appreciate you doing that. If you would like to leave a rating or review, you can find out how to do that on the show notes as well. So edsnapshots.com forward slash YMB8. And I'll see you guys again in a couple of weeks with another great podcast. And until then, keep enjoying truth, goodness, and beauty with your children every single day.